Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, I'm very pleased that so many of you have chosen to join us on what in New York is a beautiful late summer afternoon, one of these rare days. In fact, it reminded me for Tom and Jean of, of exactly 50 years ago now. Um, I started my Chinese at the place where you are seated right now. Uh, at the summer trimester at Stanford was the beginning of my now 50 year endeavor to master the Chinese language. I wonder what my teachers would say about my tones today. Um, but I know the weather is great there, so I need not comment on it. I'm thrilled today uh, to be talking about a book which I thoroughly enjoyed. Here it is. It's called Faithful Decisions, Choices That Will Shape China's Future. And in this environment, when there's so much discussion that lacks history, lacks analysis of data, lacks so much kind of understanding of China, this book is a must-read. Must Both the editors and two of the contributors are with me today, which is Tom Finger and Gene Oi. They have done truly a remarkable job in putting this, this book together. I think it will be a, a, a textbook for a course one day on modern China. And it really leaves the reader with, um, you know, the, the, the subheading, the choices that will shape China's future leads everyone, each of these chapters, it depends on what the Chinese do, and that is gonna influence what US-China relations are, what China looks like going in the future. Um, Jean is the William Haas Professor of Chinese Politics in the Department of Political Science, and he's Senior Fellow in the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. She directs the China program at the Walter Shorenstein Asia Pacific Research Center and is the Li Shaoqi Director of the Stanford Center at Peking University. If I went over all of her publications, we wouldn't have time for this program, especially if I combined them with Tom. Uh, Tom Finger is the Shorenstein Distinguished Fellow in the Shorenstein Asia Pacific Research Center at Stanford. He previously was the first Deputy Director of National Intelligence for Analysis and concurrently was Chairman of the National Intelligence Council. He had a long career before that in uh, INR, in, uh, Intelligence and Research at the State Department and in many other kind of areas in the US government. If I went over all of his publications, then we, wouldn't, we would run over without even having a discussion. But I'd like to just start this with Gene, since you started this project. Talk about why this book, why now, and what message are you trying to leave with the readers? And then we'll go to Tom, who joined the project later on. But Gene, thank you so much. Um, love having an afternoon to spend, or an hour and 15 minutes to spend with you and Tom. Well, first, um, Steve, thank you very much and the National Committee for having us on. And I hope that you are right that this is going to turn into a textbook. 
Uh, let me say that um, this volume started uh, as really um, an effort to celebrate the 10th anniversary of the China program um, at APARC. And so we just, this was like in, this, this was in 2017. And we knew that the 40th anniversary of uh, opening and reform was coming up. So we took it upon ourselves to this task of trying to um, figure out whether uh, China would continue to be the uh, economic juggernaut. Um, you know, could what China has done in the past 40 years, would it continue? Um, you know, was there going to be a new model coming online if they were going to change their model? And so the approach that we took, and this really determined who we, um, you know, uh, how the authors were selected. And let me say also that, you know, it's with any volume, there are a lot of issues that we were not able to cover. And there are a lot of great authors out there, but, you know, we decided to try to focus this as much as possible. And I think that perhaps the best way to, to um, convey our approach is to say that we wanted to examine the internal as well as the external context that facilitated China's economic um, growth. And, you know, looking at China, it was pretty clear that the demographic dividend was over and that future growth would depend on improvements in human capital and health and elder care uh, would require higher expenditures. And at the same time, we also, and, and Tom could say more about this, but the external environment also has changed radically over the last 40 years. Part of this um, is because of China's own behavior, uh, but there's also to consider that, you know, China is not alone anymore uh, in the sense that there's the rise of economic competitors that are actually determined to follow China's path. And then, of course, uh, something that we're experiencing right now, increasing friction with the United States and other um, major um, economies. And so, you know, we've got this very changed demographic and economic situation. The miracle growth period we thought was um, pretty uh, much uh, over. And by the time we started this, there was already the acceptance of the new normal. Growth had already slowed. But in addition to this, we um, also um, had a sense that the uh, challenges that Ch China's leaders were uh, facing domestically were also changed in the sense that the demands from the population were increasing. I think we have to realize that something like 70% of the population has only known high uh, growth rates uh, and with that high expectations. And so together, I think the Chinese people, foreign firms, other governments are demanding more um, and they're less patient. And so, you know, with those type of challenges, you know, we, um, and oh, let me just want one more. And something else that is very different um, and something that is very recent has to do with the, with the rise of the internet. How um, was, how effectively is China going to be able to control the internet, social media? Because here is the one sort of new outlet for people to vent their demands and frustrations. 
Um, and so with all, this is just, you know, some of the challenges. And then the, the other part of our task was, well, what, is, what, are, what are China's leaders doing to address these challenges? And let me just stop here and then maybe we can talk about uh, the, you know, what they're doing a, a bit more and then I'll just turn it over to Tom to um, add to that. Steve, yes, go ahead. Okay, okay. yeah, but at, then at some point, I'm going to talk about kind of how you chose the issues that you chose, what in fact did you not put in the book? In other words, I found it very thorough um, and that these issues really laid out a substantial percentage of the issues that I think about every day in thinking about China's future. But Tom, or yeah, do you want to? Uh, Steve, thank you for uh, hosting this discussion. It's wonderful to do an activity with the National Committee. Uh, my involvement goes back 55 years, I guess, with the National Committee. <laughs> yeah, it's that the question even, long, is, even longer than Jan's. Well, <laughs> right from the beginning with Jan. The uh, kind of overarching questions to build on what, what Gene said, you know, what's China going to be like in the future and how will it act internally and, and externally? Uh, in the context of probably a majority of commentary extrapolating from past economic performance, and as Gene said, China is a juggernaut that would continue on with extremely high rates of, of growth and would act uh, in ways commensurate with, take your pick, its ideology, its economic strength, its major power status. And we were quite dissatisfied with mechanistic interpretations that China would do this, act in that way, evolve in a particular way for reasons of history, for reasons of ideology, for reasons of uh, economic scale. And we wanted to get at some of the concrete problems uh, that China faces now and will face. And we decided to do that by digging into a relatively small number of what we considered critical challenges. Education, healthcare, an aging population, uh, the, the need to maintain uh, or perhaps expand a very expensive military relationship with its neighbors, uh, sustaining economic growth uh, at a level that would meet rising expectations and rising requirements uh, of a more modern uh, population. We didn't have expectations about how it would turn out. Um, we were not looking to assemble chapters that proved uh, China's unstoppable evolution into something or that China would collapse. And indeed, we pretty early on ruled out both straight line projections of the juggernaut or the wheels fall off and China becomes a, a flailing or, or failing state. What was of interest was that vast middle ground of muddling through, of coping, uh, of sequencing actions, of coordinating actions uh, across policy areas so that education policy fit, technological explanations fit, desire to move up the sophistication of production that fit with military capabilities uh, and the like. That when we 
invited people to participate, to contribute to, to this, one of the initial framing questions they asked us was, so you, you asked us about, to talk about the future. How far out? And we said, you tell us, what's the relevant time scale in the area that you know more than we do? Um, and in, in the event, most took a kind of a 10 to 15 year uh, timeline because nothing's going to change terribly quickly. Let me end with saying we put the title on after we had assembled the study, when we, we recognized how important the choices that will be made by political leaders are and the variety and the significance of the pressures that they're going to have to respond to. Some of them relating to development, modernization, some of them to uh, the changing nature of the population, some to the consequences of two generations of one child per couple, uh, so that there are there's nobody to stay and take care of grandma, you need more facilities. Um, we'd be delighted to respond to questions about specific components that are, are in there. What we included was a uh, experientially informed notion of what the interesting questions were, what the difficult problems were, what our Chinese colleagues uh, were, were grappling with. And on the international dimension, the changes, as Jean pointed out, in the international context. Uh, as China uh, now must operate in a, an environment that is much less receptive uh, automatically supportive of Chinese efforts, more reactive, more cautious, and above all, a whole lot more competition. Because when China started reform and opening, it was the first and it turned out to be the only country that was kind of allowed to enter the free world candy store without having to change a political system, without having to come an ally uh, that, uh, engagement predicated on if China is going to be our partner in the never-ending Cold War, better to have a strong partner than a weak partner. But that that had changed. Uh, and now, the collapse of the Soviet Union, China's success, you've got give or take 150 countries that had had some variant of Stalinist economic models that want to now emulate China's trajectory of modernization by following export-led growth, by participating in the rules-based order. Uh, and they use China as a model for how they can become competitors of China. Um, just sort of add to what um, Tom is saying, this Steve may actually give you a, a little more insight into sort of how we chose the chapters, the topics and the authors. We, you know, we, in a sense, you might say, we wanted to explain the variation um, in um, reform and that they, China, we, we started out with the fact that they've done amazingly well, but there are some areas that were reformed more than others. And the other thing that um, we uh, realized, and this in part draws from my own work, is that it became, 
it's quite clear that China, although some people may not realize this, that China has actually done, gone a long way with only tweaking the institutions that they um, inherited when they started reform in the late 70s. And I, we thought that was very interesting. And so there was the question of, well, is it really the case that they, they don't have to change the system? Um, and, and they could just keep going on and being this economic juggernaut? Or is there some point when they're going to have to um, make deeper institutional change? And for me, at least, I picked um, topics. I wanted to see uh, what, what, what happens in those areas where they have refused to let go of what seemed one would think would be outdated institutions, including things like the household registration system, the HUCO system. Um, you know wh what happens when you know you you uh, and and how does that system then complicate the decisions that they have to make? Because um, as the chapters in Mary Gallagher's chapter um, makes very clear, this and and that this HUCO system. It's not just about um, you know the about who gets to have land and who doesn't, but it's the question about what kind of treatment um, migrants get in the cities. But something that people don't realize is that this HUCO system also affects the way that uh, different um, cities uh, 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 are, are receptive to the migrants because it affects the way they get their budgetary allocations. Mm -hmm. So we really wanted a deep dive into- yeah, so Exactly, so that's precisely what the book does. So you would say the HUCO system, which I guess we expected to be basically abolished at some point. Right. It, it has been, but it has been, but it has been modified. The HUCO, the HUCO system of when I first started living in China in 1979 is not the HUCO system of today. So is, is that kind of, you, you think of that as tinkering on the edges, but maintaining the institution? The HUCO system has been modified. And in some of the smaller cities, the HUCO system is not that important. But in the mega cities, the old system in many ways is still um, in effect. And the, to the point where um, they, because this is, this, this gets into some detail, but I think it's sort of interesting that um, having worked with some people in uh, NDRC, for example, they readily acknowledge that they are not actually able to change the HUCO system. And so when they talk about urbanization, the rates of urbanization are actually much higher than the actual changes in the number of people who actually have hukou, urban hukou. They're counted as urban hukou, but they don't have urban hukou. So there's still two classes of citizens. This is why um, we had this chapter um, that looks into how different localities are trying to deal with the question of who should actually be given a legal hukou because that still affects the, um, uh, their rights and their income yeah. and, and everything else. Tom, did you want to add something? I was going to add another kind of illustrative of the, the, of the depth that, that you were pointing to, Steve, that having an urban hukou 
is the basis for eligibility to free education, yeah. to health care or levels of health care, uh, to being able to hook up to urban gas and water and sewer lines, uh, worker compensation, disability, retirement, pensions, all are linked there. That in the way that they are currently distributed largely uh, through workplace. Uh, if you grant urban hookah to migrant workers, but don't expand the size of the pie that is to be developed, you're taking money and opportunities and benefits away from existing workers, existing urban yep. residents. So you've got a, a financial development that here, uh, and the converse in the rural areas, with people now reluctant to give up rural hookah in some areas because the value of land is great. And if they're working in the cities, they can rent it out to some even poorer farmer. Uh, and that's fixed. That's, uh, that is a certainty, whereas urban life is still pretty uncertain. How much of the healthcare do you pay for? Last question on hookah, then I want to go on to a bunch of other, but what percentage of the population lives in urban areas where hukou is still restricted? So Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, Shenzhen, you know, the, the, the big top tier cities. What's the percentage of the total population that lives in those areas? Do we know? Gosh, I don't have the, the number on the tip of my tongue. Uh, I'm sure Karen Eggleston could tell me <laughs> she's not on the call. Tom, do you know? I don't. The, the, the percentage of the population classified as urban is now s slightly over 50%, with a goal of becoming 70% within a, a, a few more years. Um, yeah. And there, in the, the plan, there are numbers per year uh, of those who are migrants to be converted into urban hukou, uh, they, they've fallen far behind that uh, in there because with the economic slowdown and now the COVID disruption of the yeah. economy, yeah. there isn't the money to fund it. But is this one, uh, I guess I said we'd move on, but is this one where we don't give China enough credit for really fundamentally changing this system. When I first lived in China, when you graduated from the university, you would be fun pay to a place. Right. You would be, I don't even, what would you call it in English? Fun pay, just assigned. sent. Assigned. Yeah. Assigned. Yeah, just assigned to a place. And you got hukou in that place. Now you choose it yourself. You can work there. Your employer can ultimately obtain, if you work a number of years, pay taxes, your employer can ultimately uh, obtain hukou, isn't that kind of well, fundamentally a different system? So, well, first I want to make sure that the audience understands, um, you know, because one of the arguments that we make um, is that, well, you know, the easy reforms have been done. And I want to stress that there has been significant change across the system and they have tackled very difficult problems, including things like laying off workers. Um, and the changes that you point to, Steve, yes, they are very real. People are not as, um, uh, they're, they're not so easily assigned and not as many people are just assigned uh, their position. But 
quickly on things like the, uh, if you are from the countryside and you have uh, a peasant house, rural household registration, technically you're not supposed to be in the rural areas. People do it and they've been able to do it ever since the markets opened. But that is why when the um, different cities decide to quote, clean them up, they can very legitimately send them away. So yes, there's yeah. been some change, but at the same time, this old institution is only sort of been changed around the, uh, around the edges. Yeah. So it's still as, there. As we saw in Beijing, they moved out what a million people who didn't yeah. have food. I mean, it exactly. was quite stunning to, uh, to see. Um, I should tell the audience, I see we have Q&A that, you know, if you want to ask a question, just go on the bottom of your screen is the Q&A function. You can ask a question uh, that way. I see that uh, Carl Eikenberry, who is the author of the chapter on military modernization in the book, is, is on this call. So Carl, if you want to type something into the Q&A, uh, we, we will certainly read it. Um, back to the book for a moment. Um, Gene, you talk, it's a, it's a beautiful example of kind of central local government relations, you know, and that it, it shows, you know, there's a view in the United States is like, they say the Chinese government. And I always go, what do you mean the Chinese government? It depends which agency, it depends, do you mean state, do you mean local, do you mean national, do you, which, you know, which, I mean, it's, it's amazing. So you use the, the local debt crisis as a uh, kind of a deep dive to understand this. Can you talk number one, about what that teaches you about central local relations. And two, there's a lot written out this debt crisis, the local debt crisis being an existential threat to China's financial system. And then talk about that as you look down out five or 10 years. Okay. Um, one of the reasons why I chose to focus on central local relations, and this sort of gets to your over your, your initial point, um, Steve, that, you know, I think a lot of people assume that the central state is all powerful. Um, and, you know, it's unified and, and such, but it's far from the truth. And I would also assert that um, the growth that China uh, has experienced, it would not have uh, uh, enjoyed that without the active participation of local cadres, the local state. Those who are familiar with my work know about that. This is, this is sort of the a theme I've been pursuing for quite a while. So the reason why I then chose to look at this is in trying to answer the question of what China will be like is what is the relationship between the localities and the center, i.e. will they continue to be their entrepreneurial selves Will they have the incentives to pursue economic growth or have there been new um, circumstances that will intervene and um, cause actually the old model that got China this far not to work? And maybe Xi Jinping has decided that he doesn't like that model. That's fine, but he then has to tell us what's he gonna do instead. And so I picked this, um, uh, local government debt because it is like a, it's just an incredible um, window 
into the complexity of this relationship between the center and the localities. On the one hand, if you look into the details of um, the fiscal relationship between the center and the localities, you see one where the center is continually blaming the localities for local government debt. And this is where the anti-corruption campaign comes in. And that's sort of one of the new factors that has been injected into the situation. And so for me, that was like a perfect opportunity to ask, well, is this really the right medicine? for um, Xi Jinping in the center to use to try to, you know, tamp down this, this local debt. And what I find is that a lot of this local debt is actually, I would argue, the direct result of central policies, i.e. the fiscal system, which was created in, since 1994 in such a way that left the localities um, systemically short of revenue that they just put that, that system just created uh, debt. And the really interesting question then becomes, well, why do local officials go along with this? And the answer is, well, they have political ambition and, and they're gonna get ahead and if they're gonna get ahead, they need to come up with a, with a solution. And so they have. And, and the solution is to borrow. But what's really interesting, and I've got another piece um, that I'm actually working on now, um, that uh, talks about how, again, this was with the consent of Beijing and specifically Jurongji. That they, that Jurongji, um, in, in order to get 1994 reforms passed, said to the localities, okay, you know, you guys can go off and, and earn this different revenue to make up for the losses from 1994. Um, and so that was sort of the start of this. And this went on very nicely and was manageable um, uh, until the uh, global financial crisis. And, and, and that then really spiked the amount of debt that the localities had to borrow. But the real crisis, and you ask, is this an existential crisis? Well, I think that up until then, it was manageable. And it actually was manageable until this debt that was this, this huge debt that was um, undertaken started coming due in around 2012, just about the time that Xi Jinping came in. And with that, he then decides, okay, this is getting a little too risky because local governments are engaging in all sorts of things to try to get more money, including shadow banking um, you know, mechanisms and such. And, and so you, 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 you turn into a situation where what was once legal, not legal, wasn't illegal, it was condoned into something that is now turned into a negative for you, local. You mentioned, you mentioned in the article that this bonus system that existed for local officials. Can you, can you talk about that and what's really, how that has evolved now to potentially being illegal? Okay, yes. Part of the reason why, um, and this you know, goes back to my work on, on TVEs, that starting in 1980, the, one of the reasons why local, local countries were so entrepreneurial is that it became um, legal for them to keep all this extra revenue that they generated, and then localities could use the, that revenue for bonuses for individual cadres 
individual bureaus. And so it was like a win-win situation for them. And, and so one of the things that's happened, and this is what I say, and this is, I worry about this, is that with the recent anti-corruption campaign, there's also efforts to say no more bonuses, you know, none of these perks that came with being a local official. And so local officials, because of this anti-corruption campaign, they're really scared. You know, this is, I mean, when you watch your colleagues being dragged off the stage after having given a major speech, you think, uh-oh, you know. And so perhaps it's best not to be so entrepreneurial, but instead just sit on your hands. And, and talking to, to, to people in the know and local, some local officials, um, it's a much, a much sort of riskier uh, proposition to, 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 to really use all of the entrepreneurial tools that local officials yep. had in the past. This is why my question, and I end the chapter with this, is you know, the problem is systemic. The problem is institutional. They've got to reform the fiscal system. But if they keep going after local cadres, the question is, you know, will the, this impede their ability to get these folks to really buy, to really be active in uh, pushing yeah. the growth that's Let, necessary? Last question, then I will on this issue, then I want to go to Tom in, in, his, in his chapter in the book. But, I mean, we've all studied China a long time, and we've seen not only post-49 China, but pre-1911 China, this centralization Localization, centralization, local. Is that just what we're seeing here again? Yes, definitely. I mean, this is one of the key themes that um, uh, Tom and I, you know, try to stress that it's re-centralization. And we use the term, we haven't brought this term up yet, but I want to make sure. So, you know, this question about, well, what is the, what is the regime doing to try to address these challenges? Are they pushing forward in reform? Or are they doing something else? And in the end, Tom and I, we had some doubts about this, but in the end, we think this is the best characterization is they're going back to the future. And this going back to the future is re-centralization, tightening in, uh, controls, investing in ideology rather than deep institutional change. So they're using slogans like, you know, look in the mirror and take a bath. You know, we haven't heard this for a long time. Um, so yes, this is what I think is happening. And, and I think that this idea about centralization, recentralization, it's this pendulum that swings back and forth over the many years that we've been studying China. Yeah. And clearly it is swung back to centralization. Centralization, yeah. Tom, in addition to helping edit the book, wrote a chapter in the book, which is called Sources and Shapers of China's Foreign Policy. And if I were to summarize it, um, it's there is continued consistency in China's foreign policy that this idea that we've seen a, a new China that's totally different from what we saw over the past 40 years is probably not right. First, tell me if that would be a reasonably accurate summary. And then tell, you know, tell us, what does it mean? If your analysis is right, you've spent your life until you came back to Stanford working in intelligence. What does this mean for how we should formulate US policy towards China? Yeah, well, you did read it correctly. Um, and the, 
I passed. I was always worried about passing. It's link to the domestic portions of the book uh, is the observation, uh, to me, the, the reality that foreign policy in any country, certainly in China, doesn't float off there by itself. It's an intrinsic element of national policy. And for China after 78, development, modernization, sustained economic growth in order to provide for the people to enhance legitimacy for the party state uh, was priority number one. So the duty of foreign policy was to facilitate that, to uh, maintain security, reduce threats, manage threats, but also to create and exploit opportunities for an economic relationship, cultural relationships, people to people. And that concentrated on the United States, on the OECD countries more broadly, that uh, like Willie Sutton's, you know, why do you rob banks? Because that's where the money is. Why did China deal with the most developed countries? Because that's what had the technology, the capital, the training, the markets that, that China needed to pursue the uh, South Korean, Taiwan path of, of export-led growth. That when China embarked upon this path, it was almost as if they had read George Washington's farewell address on avoiding entangling alliances and commitments. That they wanted to minimize as much as possible the extent to which they became enmeshed in, uh, vulnerable to, dependent on this broader international situation wanted to counterbalance dependence on the United States with relationship with Europe and Japan, wanted to counterbalance the security ch challenge of the then Soviet Union uh, with a better relationship with the United States. All of these pieces kind of fit together. That remembering back to the early days of reform and opening, uh, there were regular good-natured exchanges with Chinese who were going to basically take advantage of the international system uh, to jumpstart China's ability to have independent, sustained growth. Um, and I characterized at the time as get in, get rich, get out. <laughs> um, and the, the Chinese tried to do that um, for many years and kind of the uh, smiling response of Americans was good luck, that your success will depend on your engagement in the system. And the more successful you are, the more deeply involved, the bigger your stake in the system. That long antedates Bob Zellick raising the responsible stakeholder idea. The link to the other part of the book is that the China since roughly 2008, and it, I think it links more to the global financial crisis than to personalities, but China begins to be more concerned about maintaining domestic stability as growth is beginning to slow and the prospect is for more slow and needing more control, less vulnerability to interference and disruption on the outside. It begins not in uh, broad compass, but in selected ways to uh, be more assertive uh, as it's characterized, to try to be more independent, but it doesn't work uh, for China. And as growth is slowed, 
the recognition that in order to manage all of these domestic challenges, in order to meet the rising expectations and demands of Chinese people, in order to pay for the now very expensive military that Carl describes in his chapter, in order to sustain the commitments made under Belt and Road, that uh, China has to keep growing. And the only way to keep growing is to continue to work with and within the rules-based order. Now, China doesn't like certain aspects of that order, the degree of US dominance being one, um, and it wants changes to the order, but it doesn't want to throw the order out. Yeah. Uh, so the, the degree to which China's own domestic interests and legitimacy and ability to deliver on promises it's made to the Chinese people about when it becomes a high-income country and, and the like, require that it maintain pretty good relationships with other major economic players. Mm -hmm. So how would you answer, uh, Natasha Locke from Yinching Academy asks a question, which is, which poses the biggest concern to the Chinese government today, getting exactly at the question that you're addressing, protecting its internal domestic legitimacy or maintaining external international relationships. And what you're saying is they're complementary, not conflicting. Yeah, they're, they're two sides of the same coin. Uh, that I would put the internal stability, legitimacy first, which is probably the case with all countries. China's not unique in that regard. But the two most important pillars of legitimacy uh, are domestic economic performance and um, patriotism, nationalism, the mythology that has grown up around sovereignty and defense of China's interests. That makes it necessary, in my analysis, for China's leaders to take a less compromising position on anything that is easily construed as an affront to Chinese sovereignty. Um, Otherwise, they risk internal criticism for no longer standing up for China. Jean, anything you want to add on that point? No, it's just uh, the only thing is just to highlight the BRI, because we have uh, three chapters on BRI and three excellent chapters. And this is the question of, on the one hand, China is trying to use um, external relations, you might say, um, but it is, is a very costly, it's very expensive, particularly when they're making big commitments. And then the question now of given COVID and the collapse of a lot of these um, uh, economies, um, what is this going to do with all, to all of the the demands for the limited budget. China's, you know, wealthy, but I mean, it's got a lot of money, but still, um, when, you, when you have all these different demands, that is only gonna complicate matters. And there's already some indication that some in China are wondering, you know, why are you spending all this money building infrastructure uh, abroad when we need it at home? Just very similar to, you know, issues that we have here in the US actually. You know, Tom, I take slight issue with, with all countries are, you know, have the same uh, 
kind of view of maintaining their legitimacy, maintaining the rule of the ruling party. I would argue that China's is particularly acute um, compared to OECD countries, Japan, Korea, the United States. Um, and that, you know, it reminds me of a, a friend who was the national security advisor of, of uh, China, or was head of the leading group on foreign affairs. And he said to me, he said, you got to always remember that at this point, President Obama was president. Now, maybe different under, under President Trump, but under, President Obama gets up in the morning and first thing he gets is his, his intelligence briefing, which briefs him on, on Afghanistan, Iraq, Somalia, Venezuela. Xi Jinping gets up in the morning and he gets briefed on, on, uh, on you know, Wuhan, Chengdu, right, Lhasa. Uh, Urumuchi, you know, it's, it's very different. And the whole psychology, therefore, is very different. Yeah, th thank you for the question, which uh, underscores I did not make myself clear. That the word I thought I used was maintain the stability of the regime, which in China happens to be a party state. In the United States, it happens to be a functionally a two-party democracy. So it's that it, in other countries, it's not to maintain or not necessarily to maintain the, the ruling party's position, is to maintain the political system that uh, allows the economy to function, that allows for democracy to be practiced, that allows for uh, states or lower levels of the system to have whatever degree of autonomy they have. So the, thank you for the chance to, to clarify. That's the, the common element, the unique one in China, is the degree to which the party is the state. And, and here, let me just add one bit here, because this is one of the comp complicating factors for their reform. It's, I think people sort of um, have pushed aside the idea that, it, that ide ideology matters. But in, in many ways and in, at many times, this, this factor, this ideology, this idea of socialism, I think comes in and complicates the, the choices that the leadership uh, can make. That's why some of the reforms have moved much more slowly than others, specifically the reform of the SOE sector. It was very difficult for them to, 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 to you know, restructure the SOEs to the limited degree that they have. Yeah. Um, and it's gonna be much harder to really, if, you know, to go even further. Is it socialism or is it control? Because the organization department appoints the head of an SOE. And if you are worried about controlling an enterprise, if you appoint the head of it as somebody who spent his life owning companies, that's a good way to control it. I actually think that there's certainly the control element, but I think that the ideology and the socialism still matters. Um, and throughout the reform period, uh, some top leaders have actually criticized the reformers for going too far and too fast because they were no longer adhering to this, the principles of socialism, including uh, things like, you know, making um, managers, giving managers the ability to buy SOEs. So it's, uh, it's, it's tough. They haven't jettisoned ideology. It's, let's put it this way. It's a useful tool, but it's also something that they, they, have, they can't just totally ignore. 
Let me, let me elaborate on that or complicate it a, a, a little bit with two of the light motifs or the uh, shaping constraints that run through the book or shape possibilities. One is you know, China's very, very impressive growth over 30 plus years, and not, not through the 40 years, but over 30 plus years. It's only slightly longer than the other Asian tigers before it levels off. It's, it's not as unique as the Chinese claim it to be uh, unique and unprecedented. But what is unique is of the uh, rapidly modernizing states, only one has leveled off and then begun to decline before it reached high income status. Mm. And that's China. And it's more than a symbolic importance to be able to claim I am a high income country, that it brings with it a greater capacity, a fiscal capacity to manage the challenges that come with higher levels of development. The other... But when you said decline, what, what did you mean, Tom, decline? Um, rate of growth is what I'm talking about yeah. uh, on this. And so much of China's self-image, so much of the external image is predicated on decades of double-digit growth, uh, which aren't coming back, uh, the adjustment to the normal, the normal. The other constraint that has emerged during the period of reform and opening uh, is an entrenched elite, that Mao, for all of the disruptions he, he caused, he did eliminate entrenched interests, bureaucratic interests, individual interests. Now, there is a single, basically a single power elite in China that has a very clear personal as well as ideological interest in maintaining the system from which they benefit disproportionately. And further reform is a less of a good idea because further reform jeopardizes the basis of their wealth and power. And I think that's a, one of the things that kicked in in the Hu Jintao era. Um, which leads to this question from Albert Goldson of the Overseas Press Club. To what extent is the anti-corruption campaign utilized strictly for political purposes, for end purges, versus actual fiscal malfeasance. Either of you want to take that one? Sure, let me start. The, uh, so Andrew Wiedemann has got a, a very detailed chapter that um, looks at this because of big debate. And I have to say that, um, you know, I think there's still debate, but I think that Andrew Wiedemann comes down and makes a pretty convincing case that it is um, not just uh, for um, you know political purposes, i.e., she going after his enemies, um, but at the same time, um, you know, is it just for actual fiscal malfeasance? Well, uh, you know, there is that, and there has been. Um, a quite a, a large number of, of people who have been um, charged, uh, sentenced and such for some issues. So it's actually been a multi-purpose tool. And the other thing about it is that it seems to just keeping, keep going on. And most recently it's expanded to the security, to the, to the security sector. Uh, I think this past week, 
Uh, so it, it, it's, I don't know, it's, um, it could just also be evolving, but, but, it's, but at least the, the work that we have, it's not just for political um, reasons. Tom, did you want to? Yeah, of course. You know, when, you know, one of the many, many dilemmas for China's leaders. There is unquestionably a great deal of corrupt activity, um, you know, illicit activity in in China. At times, it has been functionally useful. The system is imperfect. The system's got lots of flaws and gaps, and in order to get things done, there's been a wide scope for figure out how to do it and don't tell me. Uh, I don't need to know, just get, get it done. Um, uh, and that now has been put at risk. It's in this entrepreneurial behavior category that Gene uh, talked about. That Wiedemann's chapter basically says the numbers being um, uh, charged and prosecuted, removed in the Xi Jinping anti-corruption are not significantly different than those of earlier anti-corruption uh, campaigns. They, they involve more high-level people in there, but the numbers are not significantly different. Uh, in all of them, there were a small percentage of those who would be vulnerable to prosecution. So, uh, uh, Crackdown on some is a demonstration, kill the, kill the chicken and scare the monkey kind of phenomenon. But as Gene indicated earlier, it has the unintended consequence of stifling elements of entrepreneurial behavior that were rewarded in the past and now might get you in trouble. Yeah, I think the biggest change though was, was exactly what you made reference to, Tom, which is the raising the, the going to high level people that, you know, formerly members of the standing committee in the Politburo had what would, I guess I would call immunity. And that clearly has changed, and especially with the fall of Zhou Yunkong and, and others. Who um, was for a couple of years my counterpart. Right, right. So, so, so quite, quite senior. Um, Halsey Beamer, who's been at this for a few years too, asks, given the substantial recent COVID-19 impact on China's GDP growth and the fundamental budget financial background needs for all of the fateful decisions, referring to your book, how do we see the near future for China? Well, let me start and let me just go straight to this uh, question about local government debt. Um, which is, you know, the, one of the big questions. And um, they actually made some um, changes in the last couple of years before COVID, where they're trying to get rid of some of what they call backdoor financing, i.e., you know, shadow banking, but also sort of uh, using these local um, government financial vehicles to, um, to raise money. And they have moved to issuing government-approved bonds that would make debt more um, observable, controllable, uh, and under the thumb of higher-level authorities. But I think that with COVID, 
I mean, this is something that we don't yet have all the information, but it was at least pretty clear early on in sort of January, February, that the quotas that they issued for the bonds was quickly being, you know, um, exhausted. So I think that I would predict that they're probably going to be a little more lenient. They're going to have to let governments go back to using whatever methods they can to raise enough money to take care of their local needs. So um, there is that, but, uh, but then there's all these other um, demands. So Tom, why don't you take it from there? Ed and, and Halsey, thank you for tuning in. Um, we were grad school together. The concern about debt that uh, Gene referred to and is real, that China did not, in response to COVID, use the dump huge amounts of money into the system to do more infrastructure and other uh, capital investment kinds of things because they recognized it's, it's not very helpful anymore. But they also did not dump money into the system uh, as subsidies to the give or take 200 million migrants who went home to their uh, local place, rural migrants who had to eat into savings um, for basic sustenance and rely on, on relatives. And there's no indication that they will ever be compensated in some way. They just had to eat it in a very traditional uh, Chinese or any other economic system that's less than very advanced and very rich. So most of those will go back to work eventually. It'll impede the transition to a consumer-based economy uh, because of uncertainty about who's going to pay for elder care, health care, uh, education for kids, for you know, give or take half the, rural, half the population of the country. People have incentives to save. If you're saving for all of these things and now have to make up for a deficit and have to save more because the pandemic has demonstrated fragility of the system, that's going to slow the transition to a consumer-based economy, which will probably also contribute to the slowdown of economic growth. You know, the, let's go back to the book for a sec and talk about the uh, lessons I know there are a lot of chapters in the book, but what are the lessons for U.S.-China relations as opposed to China, uh, China's development, which a lot of it is talking about? What lessons should we draw from the book about U.S.-China relations? Well, I'll start with, with some, and Gene can, can add to them. One is decoupling is not really feasible. It would be a big mistake uh, to try and do for either side. And I would argue that the Chinese have done more to decouple than the United States has. Trump administration has made more gongs and cymbals about it. But China's ability to manage these challenges, as I said earlier, depends on its continued participation in a globalized system. I think they understand that. I think that creates uh, opportunities for cooperation, necessity to overcome some of the short-term uh, but very real differences that exist. Uh, a second is to move beyond worst case imagination uh, of a China as a diabolical authoritarian regime hell bent on displacing the United States and transforming 
the rules-based order into something else. I don't see it. That the, the lessons of for their own self-interest, they need a well-functioning international order, stability in the order, for all of the military buildup, for all of the um, attention to Belt and Road. Uh, Beijing understands they are not remotely in a position to assume primary responsibility for system maintenance, provision of public goods in the system. They need order and therefore they need uh, the United States, among others, to contribute to preservation of that order. So we should not, in U.S. policy, overreact to our worst imagination about what China might could be. Uh, we also should not anticipate that, that China is going to collapse. Uh, or that if China changed its political system and became a democracy tomorrow, that it would act fundamentally different in the international arena. It's still going to act like China. It's still going to act like a big country. It's still going to act like a big middle-income country with large aspirations and a demanding public. That we don't have to be extraordinarily smart, I think, to manage a, a China that's likely to stumble. We're going to deal with a China that is confidence is uncertain, path ahead is uncertain, it's going to be experimenting and trying to solve these things and move forward and step back. We're going to have to cut them some slack and avoid being stupid. Gene, for, for you, let me add a little to that question, but ask basically the same. And it's, it's added by Minya, who's a public intellectual of the, of the National Committee and an associate professor at BU. And, asking, you know, how does the U.S.-China breakdown decoupling affect your assessment of domestic change in China? Um, before I answer that question, I just want to add that one of the lessons and actually one of the, the goals of our book is to, in a sense, is to, to elaborate what Tom was saying, that, you know, China, there is domestic politics. And these leaders are face, facing incredibly um, you know, complex challenges. And so the whole book was about you know, why they haven't done a lot of the reforms. And so I guess one of the, the, the lessons is, it's not as easy as simply saying, well, you know, you can just, they should just level the playing field. Um, and, and, you know, deal with their, their basically get rid of SOEs. Um, those are not easy decisions. And, and so a lot of these institutions are inter, uh, interlinked. Um, and so we just want to highlight that there is complexity the, to the system, the challenges, uh, that change is not as easy as one um, might think. Now, in terms of Minya's question. But, um, but Jean, can we go back to that for one yes. second? When we talk about SOEs, I have for a long time, partly because I dealt with SOEs over a good part of my career, um, I have for a long time believed we will see SOE reform because basically their productivity is so inferior <laughs> to the productivity of the private sector that the leadership is going to decide, as we're seeing what Tom said is this, this decreasing rate of growth, we got to find a way to, to kind of increase it. And one of actually for them, for the Chinese leadership, 
low-hanging fruit is SOE reform in sectors where the government doesn't need to have total control. Right. I mean, do you so, really need SOEs in cement and steel in oil? This is one of the, 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 the actually, I wish we would have had a, a detailed chapter on SOE reform. Um, I just want to stress, and I've been following SOE reform for quite a while, and if one, if I had time, we could go back and the, the, the leadership, the central leadership and the local leadership, they all realize the inefficiencies and, the, and they have been wanting to reform SOEs for the longest time. They've been wanting to do this since reforms first started. Yeah. But they keep running into problems. So for example, what you just said, they would love to get rid of a lot of, of firms that are still considered SOEs, but for various reasons, they've been unable to. Um, and some of these reasons are that, you know, they, so when they do it, there's charges of asset stripping and various other things, you know, going against socialism. And, and, and so, yeah, it might look like low-hanging fruit, but boy, it's almost like forbidden fruit. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, tough. it's tough. This is the one area. And the, the, very recently, I think that um, you're correct. They are trying to reform it. They've come up with this incredibly complex system of trying to now put different SOEs in different categories. And some of them supposedly are able to compete in the market fully and others they're saying, no, no, no. You know, we still realize you've got to, to sort of help government plans and such. It's still all very murky about what actually is happening to, to that sector, but it's something to follow. And it, but it's not for the lack of not wanting to. Clearly, certainly she is saying SOEs are gonna remain a central part. Yep. But I think within that, that phrase, there is actually quite a bit of change. And then, oh, Dominia's question. Um, how does decoupling, how is it going to affect the, um, the, the political economy? In China, yeah. In China. Well, I think that China is anticipating this. And actually, um, in some ways, uh, I, I think that because of all the actions that have been taken internationally, uh, China is starting to put more resources in those areas where the, the, the links are going to be broken and they're going to have to rely on themselves. Um, and in actual interviews with some um, actually uh, Chinese corporations as well as um, multinationals, I, I get the same sense that people are already starting to anticipate this. And so they're starting to diversify, firms are starting to diversify. So I, I think that we're just going to perhaps here, I, let me bring in uh, Barry Naughton's chapter about grand steerage, that yeah. the um, center, uh, the central authorities, this is where they're gonna, I think perhaps try to make use of those SOEs and try to get them more efficient and then to inject money into certain key 
uh, sectors, particularly in the tech sector, such as chip making and such, where um, they're going to be denied access to American products. So there's going to be more, perhaps, focused state um, support for certain industries? Steve, let me, if I may, kind of expand upon my, you know, you guys should cut China some slack by what I mean, what I mean by that. That uh, not construing everything that Chinese undertake or talk about undertaking as inherently inimical to American interest and diabolical in intent. The Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, which turns out to be a pretty good way to get more capital uh, in, into uh, the system. Belt and Road, most of it's not going to happen. We shouldn't get over excited about tying this together. Why would we think it would work any better than dollar diplomacy did for the United States or yen diplomacy did for, for Japan? And focusing on the real issues in the relationship, theft of intellectual property, non-compliance with WTO and other treaty uh, commitments, the forced technology transfer. Most of them are in the economic field, but one of them that is not is in military, in uh, strategic systems. That China's refusal to participate in any type of arms control discussions with Russia and, and the United States uh, because it has fewer, fewer weapons. That's hazardous both for danger of misperception and accidents, but also because China is pursuing advanced systems now that without agreement to manage them will lead to an arms race with both the United States and the Russians which will be extraordinarily expensive for all of us. And this is sort of, a, uh, the United States needs to do a better job of making clear where it is in mutual interest to work together and get off of this. You gotta gain trust first. You've gotta improve the atmosphere before we can solve real problems. We've gotta keep pushing on that. Agree. Uh, Peggy Blumenthal has a question, which is, I think very good for both of you. As the CCP, and especially Gene, who's also head of the Stanford Center at PKU, um, as the CCP tightens control over universities, will this imperil the academic excellence and research success of its top tier university and result in decoupling in the US-China joint research and academic partnership? I would also, add my own kind of other side of that question is, is the U.S. government policy today going to result in a diminution of American academic excellence? Well, let me just start by saying that that is um, actually a major concern, um, the first part of the question. Um, and it has been for the last um, at least couple of years. Uh, and um, I, uh, and it's and talking to colleagues uh, in China, uh, we do know that there are more controls um, on the teaching materials that they use in their own classes. Whether it is going to affect uh, what American institutions do. American students and faculty, again, that's a major concern. And I can only speak for um, 
myself and our center. But um, so far, we have been, I think, quite fortunate um, that we have been able to do the programming that we um, set out to do. What is going to happen uh, in the future, I you know, don't know. But I, I have to say that I'm um, <clears throat> reacting to your second part. I'm also very concerned about, equally concerned if not more, about some of the um, the the the, the um, um, actions by the by the U.S. Um, agencies, whether that might be an overreaction. Um, um, so it's it's we need to be careful on both sides. Tom. Yeah, I think you know, to, to Peggy's question, uh, there are no advantages to either side. Certainly not to the United States. If, uh, interpreting reciprocity if they do stupid things we do stupid things um that that gets us gets us nowhere but why would any sane person want to cut off 17 percent of the world's brain power uh, in tackling the very large number of complex international uh, challenges that we have or domestic challenges in both places that we need access to the chinese and though we're only four percent of the world in many areas we punch above our, our weight. Um, uh, the ability to work together makes it possible for third country participants uh, to participate in all kinds of, of activities. That we live on the same spaceship Earth. We've got many, many interconnected interests. Some of these problems require cooperation. I think in the short term, the Chinese would be more disadvantaged than the Americans, uh, in part because of the network that we have with many, many other countries. But lo long term and longer term is not that long. We would begin to be disadvantaged if we can't work with Chinese colleagues. And that would spin off into business cooperative relations in all kinds of non-governmental associational group. If you haven't built those personal networks, uh, personal familiarity that you carry over into all kinds of areas beyond the classroom and the laboratory, we all lose. I'm afraid we are out of time, and I also think that's a perfect closing note. But Tom and Jean, thank you. I have thoroughly enjoyed this and could go on till midnight tonight. <laughs> um, but this has given you a flavor of this book, Fateful Decisions which really for those who are interested in China is just a must read, not only for Tom and Jean's chapters, but for all the other experts that have written these great chapters. And it's gonna be a book that will be making an impact for a long time to come. But thank you both so much for all you have done over so many years for US-China relations and for the committee. It's deeply appreciated and thank you all for joining us. I see everyone stayed with us the whole time so obviously they were mesmerized by both of you and um they will be equally mesmerized by the book but thanks for thank joining you, steve. us thank you thank you steve very much thank Great. you Bye now. thanks to everybody Bye -bye. for tuning in thank you for more interviews videos and links to events like this one visit us at www.ncuscr.org